Hey everybody, Fran Frischella here, and welcome to World of Basketball, the podcast that brings you special guests, players, coaches, executives from around the basketball world, outside the United States most often, and not always, but uh, certainly with an international flavor. Let's put it that way. And this week, we certainly have two very distinct flavors. Uh, all-star center for the Orlando Magic, Nick Vucevic, will join us in the first part. He's from Montenegro uh, and is having a tremendous career after spending time at USC, where he was an outstanding Trojan player and later a first-round pick of the Philadelphia 76ers before really rolling with the Orlando Magic the last eight years. And our second guest will be former San Antonio Spurs assistant coach, and one of the great coaches in the world, Ettore Messina, the Italian who is now the coach at uh, Milan, where he is building a powerhouse. Uh, he's got Kyle Hines and Malcolm Delaney. Uh, uh, Luigi Tome will play for uh, uh, Milan this year. So two really, really cool guests. Um, and Chris Tyler, my, uh, my podcast buddy, uh, I don't know how much NBA basketball you're watching, but I noticed yesterday that Greg Popovich compared Nikola Jokovic to Larry Bird. Uh, Joker, uh, the, the Joker went for 20 and 10 in his win over the Spurs, and uh, he impressed Coach Pop. Absolutely. That, that's hard to do. He can be a bit of a curmudgeon sometimes, Pop, so when you get high praise from him, you got to take it. But now I've been watching a lot of basketball over the past week, yeah. obviously. We've had a lot of time without it. I didn't watch much uh, of, the, of the scrimmage matches. So last yep. time we spoke, I hadn't really gotten back into it. But That's right. You told me that. Yeah. Since last Thursday, I've pretty much, uh, to the chagrin of my fiance, uh, I've probably <laughs> been watching a little bit too much. But that's okay. It's part yeah. of the job. We've got to do it. But what have you, because again, we haven't spoken about this. What have you thought of the, uh, the, the virtual fans? Because this is part of the, the bubble, a new thing about the bubble. I really like it. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. For some reason, it's getting a lot of flack. A lot of people think it's, I don't know, cheesy no. or something or other. No, no. I think it's I, great. I, I think it's great. I think the NBA's done a great job with the whole bubble situation. Obviously, Absolutely. Number one, the, and first and foremost, they have kept the players safe. Yeah, and uh, zero and positive the, tests in the last however many weeks. It's fantastic. Yes, the bubble has worked, and we're getting great basketball. I thought the, you know, to your point, let me start off with the bubble first. You know, the st safety protocols, testing going great. Everybody seems to be handling their business. Number two, I think the the effort, energy on the court's been sensational. Uh, I, I I love the level of play, um, and then to your point, I think the NBA deserves a lot of credit for creating an environment which is fun to watch on TV. Yeah. I love the virtual fans. Yep. I love what Jeff Van Gundy and Mike Breen did last night where Mark Jackson popped up as a virtual <laughs> fan. That was the game was bad. I was uh, I was watching Nets and uh, Celtics. And Celtics last night. Again, it, uh, we can point out all the international guys, but they're on every team in the league. So we could talk about Daniel Tice one day and I noticed Zanon Musa got some time yesterday. Kuruks uh, from Latvia played for the Nets. We could go on and on about that. Kanta. And we Can't will. Kanta. Oh, and then his Kanta, of course. But I just absolutely love what the NBA's done virtually. Um, the atmosphere, at least coming through my TV screen and probably yours, has been fabulous. And I think it's been a combination of great basketball, at least high-intensity games. Not yeah. all of them. Yet that was a blowout yesterday. But – it's been it's been great. It's been fun, and I am so glad we got basketball back. Absolutely, I'm enjoying it. I think this is a good period of time, enough time before the playoffs really start. It seems like the players are really in really good nick as well. There were, yeah. you know, some some things to kind of you know weed out in the early games, but I think they're, they're kind of playing a really good brand of basketball already. Celtics, my Celtics, they're looking really good. They look like they're yeah, back they in mid-season form. Night. So yeah. yeah, I'm I'm happy with how everything's going, and I'm looking forward to to the playoffs. Obviously, it's going to be very different because there's going to be no home court advantage for anyone that might work against the 76ers. We'll see how we go. Yeah, but exactly. It's going to be really interesting to see how it you all know, plays out. I would say this, Chris, uh, anybody, because let's, let's face it, we played almost the entire season, you know, before the pandemic. I think everybody played upwards of 60 games. And, uh, and when the playoffs start, you still have to win 16 games. Yep. You know, whoever wins this uh, NBA title this year 
is going to have to win 16 games and they're going to have to win four series. And I don't care what anybody says. Uh, there's no way this season gets an asterisk. Well, the, it, the only way it gets an asterisk is by saying that it's actually harder to win than usual and it's worth more. It's worth more I, than your I typical agree. championship. If you want to put the asterisks there and say this is worth twice as much yeah. as the regular championship, that's fine. But it's certainly not anywhere. Like these people saying it's easy, get out of here. That's ridiculous. No. No, I, I, I think it's going to be the ultimate strip down, take the fans away, mano a mano, 10 guys on the court, oh, shirts yeah. and skins. Uh, you know, the way we grew up playing basketball as kids. And uh, I, I mean, I can't wait. I mean, playoffs are going to be great. But the, the Western Conference Finals, the Eastern Conference Finals, the finals in October, that's going to be a little strange. I grant you that. So hopefully you're enjoying the bubble, but hopefully you're enjoying our podcast as well. So if you do... Uh, subscribe, give us five stars, give us a great rating. We want to keep bringing this to you week in and week out. Uh, it's, 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 been a, it's been a blast. So we're going to bring today um, two really good guests. And, and uh, Nick Vucevic from the Orlando Magic, uh, he's got one amazing story to tell about a time he was 15 years old that not a lot of people know. And uh, I, I'll just put it this way. He survived arguably the worst tragedy in the history of his country. So that's, that's amazing. And then the, just the transformation, Chris, of a kid who, who normally back in 2006 or seven would have signed a pro contract, you know, in Serbia instead of coming to the United States. But his dad who played for a long time said, no, nope, I think I got a better way for you. You need to go to America and go to college. And that worked out. And then of course, my good friend, Ettore Messina, who I've known since, gosh, the mid-1980s, we're kind of contemporaries, is really one of the great coaches in the, in the world. And he brings, I think, a great perspective on the NBA, on Greg Popovich and the Spurs, and his time winning championships in Europe. And now he's back running, coaching, and running the entire Olympia Milan organization. So I think we're going to have two great guests, and uh, we're ready to bring them to you. So without further ado... Part one of today's uh, World of Basketball, Nick Vucevic of the Orlando Magic. Well, we welcome to the podcast Nick Vucevic, who is in the bubble in Orlando. And Nick, I got to ask you, um, is it good that you're 20 miles from your wife and son, or would you rather be 3,000 miles? It's got to be a little tricky that you're close to home, but you're, you're stuck in that bubble. Honestly, at first it'd be like really weird, but it's not uh, it's not too bad. I don't, I don't really think about it. But when we are done, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, you know, in a little while from now, you know, it'll be a quick trip home. So it's it's not bad. But it's not even twenty miles. I think I'm, I might be ten or something like that. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. It's yeah. actually twelve minutes. When my wife brought me <laughs> something one day, it literally took her twelve minutes. Wow. Um, to get here, so it's well, it's pretty close. That's good. What 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 is uh, for for basketball fans? Uh, you now you guys have a routine going. What is the routine for for the for your team? I, I'm assuming it's the same as everybody else. But what's it like? What's the good things? What's the frustrating things? Uh, well, the the only tricky thing is you know usually in season you kind of practice at the same times. It's usually you know 11 or 12 depends if you had a game or if we came in late the night before or something like that. So we're here, you know, you practice at different times, you play at different times, so you have to adjust your routines. Uh, but again, it's the same for everybody, so we make it work. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, since we started playing, we can go to other, you know, to the other hotels and do different activities, so that helps a little bit. But, you know, you kind of try to make it as similar as you can to what would you do, you know, in regular season at home. You know, you, uh, if we have shoot around, you go do that. If not, you know, you try to do some stuff at the hotel kind of get going and then uh, you know in, in your room you have team meetings things like that so I think since we started playing we try to you know do as much as we can what we do in general it's just that you know we kind of stuck to your room a little bit you know you don't really have you know you know house if you have kids you should spend time with them or something like that but uh you know this way maybe you know you can keep your focus more on, on basketball but you know we, we have a pool we can go to you know different activities like I said so it's a little limited in that area but I think that you know it's better than a lot of us expected you know a lot of the American players talk about this basketball tournament going on you know the, the end of the regular season and then the playoffs soon kind of like AAU basketball now you I don't remember when you came to Stone Ridge if you played any you played for the Montenegrin uh, 
national junior team, but those guys compare this to AAU. Is it weird playing? Are you used to getting used to playing in front of no fans? And did you have any experience like that when you were growing up? No, I did. I mean, even, uh, you know, sometimes with national team, we'll play, you know, in some exhibition games or something like that, some tournaments, you know, and there wouldn't be many fans in the arena or even sometimes at the, you know, uh, world championship or Europe, you know, baskets, you know, if you don't go far and if you're playing some of the, you know, games just for seedings at the end, you know, not many fans show up. So it's, you know, it's a similar feel. So I, I've experienced it before. Um, it is different. It is a little, you know, weird because we, we're used to playing in front of so many people and you know, on all these great arenas and uh, you feed off that energy of the fans. So we're here. You don't really get that. But honestly, once, you know, once you're playing and once you're in the game, you don't feel it as much. I think we'll mainly feel it when the playoffs start because, you know, that's when you know you get the real, real fans' experience. You know, arenas are like totally sold out. It's just a different vibe, and we as players feed off that, and uh, we we enjoy that. You know, whether you're home on the road, uh, there's something about it. So we're definitely gonna miss it. But I think that you know the way the, the the arenas are set up here, you know, with all the screens around, the virtual fans, you know, they're trying to you know, throw in you know uh, the noises from the fans or uh, you know, music and stuff, it helps, you know, yeah. it's not ideal, but again, you know, the situation in the world is very difficult. So yeah. we're, we're happy to, to be here. Let me change subject. Um, a lot of people, I know they write about this in Orlando every January 23rd. That's kind of like your second birthday. Yeah. Um, but a lot of fans don't know this incredible story about you, you and your dad, I think we're coming back on a train, uh, and, and I hope it's not bad memories, but, um, 47 people killed in a train accident you survived it um how first of all do you think about it often and does it how did it change your life it had to uh i mean in that moment i wasn't really you know aware of when i was and wasn't because i was so young of really how you know uh big and major of an accident i was now looking back at it honestly i don't think about it too much you know i think that luckily since i didn't have any no major injuries or anything that that's affected my life long term. I was able to kind of suppress it and not think about it. You no, know, obviously when that day comes, you think about it and you remember it. But other than that, I, I try not to. Unfortunately, you know there were people that lost family members. Uh, there were people that you know had you know injuries and complications that you know they have to live with for the rest of their life. So I'm sure for them is much worse. Uh, but for me, yeah, I mean. Um, it, it was, uh, I mean, it was, a, you know, the worst, uh, you know, tragedy in Montenegro history, I think. You know, a lot of, like you said, 47 people had died, a lot of uh, young kids and I think some babies as well. So it was a big tragedy. Uh, but yeah, we're coming back from, uh, we had a like a winter camp with our team and then everything was going great and you know, we had a, lot, a great time. And then on the way back, on the brakes on the train just stopped working. And since we're going in front of the mountains, back to our city you know it's downhill so the train just started going you know with no brakes at you know crazy speed and uh but out of that whole section from where we entered the trains where we're supposed to get out that was they say the you know since we were going to derail the best part to do it because we derailing a tunnel so the tunnel actually slowed the train down a little bit so when you came out of tunnel you know the crash wasn't as bad as it could have been if you know it just had derailed in wide open it would have because our like we literally stopped like five feet from like a big uh river you know obviously if we went down there it would have been much worse but uh yeah i mean when that happened in the moment you know, you're just you're, you don't really know what to think you're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen and was the train stopped my first thought was to find my father because he was on the train with us so once i saw him you know i felt better but you're lost you don't really know what's going on what to do like it's just a very difficult situation but uh I think a lot of memories from there kind of thing went away, luckily for me, and I was able to suppress them, like I said. And so, uh, yeah, but it was a terrible tragedy, and obviously for a lot of people, you know, that obviously had to deal with much more than uh, I had to do. Do your teammates text? I, I I read where your teammates on that team text each other. Just yeah, to... the, the ones that, I'm, you know, a lot of those guys, actually, I'm still very close friends with. So we, yeah. uh, we text on that day, and we remember yeah. it, and uh, we talk about it a little bit. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, like I said, but for us that didn't have major you know, injuries or impacts, we kind of are able to not think about it too much. Obviously, for the people, I'm sure, yeah. much worse. So listen, you know, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a tall guy. Uh, I've been to Belgrade. I've been to, I've been to Zagreb. I've never been to Podgorica. 
but I've been told it's the tallest people in the world walking around Podgorica. Is that true? Like, uh, <laughs> well, it's close. I heard it actually. Uh, Holland has the tallest people. Really? That's what I, I heard. Don't know. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, in, uh, yeah, if you came to Montenegro, you'd see a lot of tall people, which is probably why you know, here everybody keeps asking me how tall I am and telling me that yeah. I'm tall. Like, but they I don't, don't do that. Already. They probably no, they don't, don't do that, that back they home. They don't do that. It's, it's normal <laughs> here when somebody sees me and they're like, oh, you're tall. And I'm like, well, yeah, I kind of I knew that already. But thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Not as tall as uh, Slavko Vranish. Yeah, no, they're no. Yeah. No, sub, sub tall. I, I remember walking around Zagreb one summer and I'm five, seven and the women are six foot two and the men are six foot five. And so yeah, I, yeah. and that obviously basketball is a very popular sport in your in your neck of the woods where you, you know, you grew up. What's it like? Do you do you remember your dad played for such a long time and you grew up in places like Switzerland and Belgium? Um, do you remember your dad playing? I mean, how how long into your childhood did he end up playing professionally? Yeah, he played until I was uh, 12. So I remember a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I used to go to all, almost all his practices because uh, in, in Europe they practice at night usually. So after school, I'd go a lot of times and uh, obviously almost every game. And uh, so, I mean, it, it was a huge part of our childhood. I really enjoyed it because I was always kind of the, the the cool kid. You know, I, I go to the games. My dad is playing. He's one of the be better players. And so, you know, I, I get a little bit of this special treatment with my friends. So it was, it was, uh, it was always uh, fun. But, hey, I remember a lot of it. I mean, uh, I mean we, we still talk about it, certain stories. And, uh, I mean, it's the reason why I started playing. You know, I wanted to be like him and surpass him one day. And so it was uh, – I really enjoyed that part a lot of my childhood going to games and practices and uh, try to be like him. Yeah, you you know, a lot of us who love international basketball, which I do, um, I, I noticed doing some research, your dad played on a very good uh, team, the Yugoslavia national team in 85. He played with a guy by the name of Drazen Petrovic. They're actually roommates. Wow, wow. What, what What's he share? Does he share stuff or, or did he? As you were growing up about Drazen, and I mean, because he's still a beloved figure, especially in Croatia. I mean, he was just saying that he was, you know, very, uh, you know, crazy about the game. You know, he he worked so hard and put so much into it. You know, off the off the you know court, you know, just you know, just like most people, you know, you could talk to him about anything. But uh, he said on on the court, he was really you know crazy about the game. You know, he used to, I mean, all the stories about him, you know working out all these hours and everything are true. So uh, he said it was a little different in national team because, you know, you have a lot of tournaments, you travel, and it's a little different setup. But, uh, yeah, he said that, you know, obviously he was an amazing player and one of the best he ever played against. Yeah. you Most guys, when, you're, when you were 18, <clears throat> 15, 14 years ago maybe, or whatever it was, no, it's even less than that. But most guys that I remember back in the 2000s that were as good as you coming, coming up would sign with a pro team. Now it's a little more uh, normal to see more kids coming over to college from Europe, European countries. How did you make the decision? You could have signed a contract, obviously, and turned pro. Why did you come to, uh, to California for prep school, and then eventually you stayed and you went to USC? What was the decision-making process, I think, with you and your dad? Yes, yeah, so actually, I had agreed with a team in Serbia to, to go there initially, and then... Uh, you no, know, once the, we were supposed to like do the contract and stuff, there were some things in there that that well, my dad was doing it for me then because I didn't have an age or anything. He, he didn't like, and uh, so actually I was I was lucky that he came from you know basketball. I knew how it worked, so he was able to protect me in that situation. Um, it was mainly do something with the buyout because you know in Europe a lot of times the buyouts are pretty, you know, uh, the numbers are insane at times. So uh, we were looking at all options, and uh, actually through a mutual friend who actually was at UCLA. Uh, they were close family friends. They you know, suggested to us that you know going to the states could be a great idea, and you know, they explained to us you know, how it was for him at UCLA, how it worked. And my dad really liked the idea, and he you know, spoke to me and asked me if there's something I would look into. And so initially, the plan was for me, you know, to, to go to high school for a year, you know, see how I do. You know, mainly for me it was because you know I was obviously very skilled, but. You know, my body wasn't developed well. And uh, in Europe, you know, people don't put a big emphasis on it as much to where in the U.S., you know, it's a big emphasis at an early age. And I think I actually think it's very important to do that, you know, for, for, for to develop your body, to, you know, work on, you know, your strength and everything so you can actually do the things you need to do on a court. And so that was something that I needed. And so when they were telling us how 
you know, that's a big emphasis on how they're, you know, much ahead of Europe in that regard. It was something that my dad was really intrigued by. And he always, I mean, he, he, I mean, he knew obviously, you know, that in the States we're always ahead in, 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 um, you know, basketball wise, at developing players that because the way the game was played. So he was always intrigued by the idea. And uh, so we kind of agreed for me to go to, if I can find a good high school to go for a year, see how I do. And if I can get a good scholarship somewhere, keep going if you know and the thought was I can always come back I mean there's always going to be teams in Europe I can go back to so we decided to do it you know we're lucky to, to find you no know, storage prep through the coach there through some other mutual friends and uh, we made it happen and uh, first it was a little difficult for me to adjust you know I mean I was off the court and on the court as well you know I was struggling I wasn't playing well but after a couple of months you know I caught up and uh you know, I was playing really well. USC saw me, you know, they, they offered me a scholarship and then, you know, everything worked out perfectly. And uh, I'm really happy I made that choice, you know, because uh, going there and actually I think the main reason also is for me leaving and being by myself at such a young age, it helped me mature so, you know, much quicker. And uh, that helped me you know, take huge steps. But, you know, it was, uh, for, for me, it was definitely the perfect choice. I and mean, obviously everybody has different ways to, to get to where they want to. But for me, I, I'm 100% positive that, you know, if I went, if I stayed in Europe, I don't think I would have you know, been able to have as much success. Are you a Trojan football fan? I am, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. this hasn't been easy the last couple of years. <laughs> we haven't made – well, it's hard because when I got there, you know, it was the best years almost. You know, Pete yeah. Carroll was still there, I think, for two years. Yeah. We had two great years. And uh, then he left well, – actually, maybe just the first year. And then he left. So it, got, it was getting a little difficult. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but uh, – yeah. yeah. But we – how much did you, uh, your freshman year, you didn't play much. You know, you were getting, and, and I don't think people realize how good a team you played on. Daniel Hackett, DeMar, Taj Gibson, you know, I mean, some really good players. And, and you had good coaches in Tim Floyd and, and of course, Kevin O'Neill. I told you a friend, uh, both are friends of mine, but um, both coaches very demanding. So you were used to that, right? That's kind of the Serbian way. And how much did you, how much do you feel you improved from the, day you got on campus to the time you left after your junior year I think those were my you know biggest improvements in my career I mean when, when I first got there I remember playing pickup you know first day I got there and, and I, I couldn't even get to the basket I mean that was it, was it was really difficult for me and I was just like I mean this I mean there I was the youngest guy I was actually a year early age-wise because I started early in Europe uh, but those guys are so you know so so much ahead of me you know uh, physically I mean it was really difficult for me. And then, uh, you know, a good thing happened for me. I was suspended for eight games because I couldn't play because I played like 30 seconds or a minute in Europe. And uh, But actually that helped me because since I couldn't play, you know, I, I, I practiced with them, but not always. And, uh, you know, so I was really able to put a lot of time in the, in the weight room and work on my body. And in two months, it was already a huge transformation for me. And I was able to actually start playing. And actually, Tim Floyd had offered me the red shirt. For a year, you know, he didn't. He he thought, you know, it would help me get more years of eligibility. But I didn't want to do it. I wanted to, you know, fight for a spot. And I ended up actually earning my minutes and surpassing one of the seniors on a depth chart. And uh, you know, playing as a backup, four or five. Some games it'd be five minutes. I started two games. Some games I played 15, 20. Actually, in the tournament, I ended up playing one game like 25 minutes because Taj Gibson was in foul trouble. So, ended up being a great year for me. But that year, I improved so much. It was really night and day difference from when I, uh, you know first got to USC and when I went back home people saw me after a year they, were, they couldn't believe that I don't transform my body so much and that was actually the biggest biggest test for me because I already had the skill set obviously I improved that as well but that you know the physical attributes just made my game you know take yeah. to another level. I know one of the things you got the chance to do when you were in LA and of course you know you've been in the league now for a while but uh, you got to watch Kobe Bryant and uh and the lakers and certainly in the clippers and I, I know just reading about you that that's that's a guy that you kind of looked up to uh you know just because of the way he handled his business yeah well actually i was um growing up i was more of a lebron and dirk fan uh-huh but, uh, so that was when lebron was still in cleveland yeah and so actually it was funny because two of my like two of us on the usc team were huge lebron fans and then we had yeah. Bunch of LA guys that were. Oh, well, wait, I got to stop you for a second. The reason you were a LeBron fan is because Sasha was playing for your. Well, he right? was, no, but <laughs> true. Yeah, that, that, that's a, I was a Cleveland fan because of that, but he was, I was okay. a LeBron fan for when he came. Okay, in okay. Because your brother in law played with him. Yeah, he did. Yes, yeah, Sasha yeah. went to the finals in 07. Yes, yes. So, yeah, yeah. Sasha Pavlovich, yes. Yeah. 
and uh, he was the uh, what's it called? Uh, yeah, we used to always like every day. It was literally every day we used to argue about LeBron and Kobe. <laughs> and Kobe. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, but I always obviously had you know so much respect for Kobe, obviously for who he was and how he handled himself and how he was dedicated to the game. And uh, I mean, all the stories you hear about him are you know, so impressive. And uh, so yeah, but I, I had had a chance to go watch you know a couple of games and uh, you know watch him in person. And uh, I was lucky enough to even play against him. Um, so, it was a huge honor for sure to play against him. Yeah. You, you've made your home in Orlando. You've signed a couple times and, uh, you know, and again, it's not, it's not a, it's not the Lakers. It's not the Knicks. It's not as well known a team, but you seem to have found a home in Orlando. And what is it about central Florida? What is it about the magic, you know, uh, your teammates that, uh, you know, makes this home for you now? I think mainly the, the 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 relationships I've built here and uh, you know, the people, the way people treated me since day one since I got here. Uh, I mean, you know, starting from the organization to the people around the city, the fans, anything. I mean, it really feels like home for us there. And uh, you know, my first son was born there. Uh, my well, we expect our second son to be born there as well. So, you know, it's where we started family. You know, I, I got married while we were you know, I was living there. Uh, so it was a city that means a lot to us. You know. It's, you know, where I came there as a boy and now, you know, I became a man there. So but mainly just the, the, the relationship I've built over the years. You know, that's, you know, to me, that's very important. And the people that treated me well and for my career, you know, it was good. Obviously, you know, I wish we were had more success team-wise, but, you know, I feel like we're going that direction as well. So it was, you know, it was worth going through all that. And now we're getting there. Hopefully we can get to the playoffs second year in a row. It'd be huge for us. Yeah. I, I like your, I like your group of guys too. And we, I feel terrible about Jonathan, uh, such a good young guy. Um, I, I know you guys feel terrible for him as well. That that injury. Yeah, it was you know very difficult for all of us. You know, I mean that type of injury at any time, but especially when you know that you know he had just come back from an injury and he was looking great and I was so excited to be back on the court. You know, it happens. Uh, you know, it's just it's devastating, really. You know, obviously mainly for him, but actually uh, we, we saw him the next day and uh, he was in good spirits. So that's you know good to see, but. Now, we know that he's going to put in the work and he's going to come back, but it just sucks when you see you know, one of your teammates, you know, somebody, you know, you spend so much you know, time together and you go through a lot of stuff. To go through that is very difficult. I mean, injuries for athletes are you know, the worst. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, one last question. We th- thank you so much for spending some time with us. Um, your son, Philip, uh, given your genes, family genes, did he, when, and he's a year and a half now, is he, uh, is he tall for his age? Yes, actually. <laughs> no, it's uh, we had a couple situations where we, we you know, we'd be out in public and people, you know, ask us, oh, like, how old is he? And we, it would be the like, well, it was before the pandemic and stuff. It yeah. was like 12, 13, 14 months. And, you know, we'd be like 14 months and they'd be like, you just see their <laughs> eyes pop out. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, my wife is, she plays volleyball and she was six feet. I mean, her family, yeah. you know, everybody's tall too. Yeah. Her, her mom, she, you know, but like her brother's tall, her sister's tall, her dad is tall. My family, everybody's tall. So sure, and he has the genes. But actually, we, the neighbors' kids—they have a daughter. She's four years old, and he's like, like <laughs> at first started like playing around. He was like shorter than her, like for my, a lot. And now he's like just a tiny bit shorter than her. And it's yeah. funny because like he's so big, but then he's yet still a baby. So you know, sometimes people expect him to just be like you know, but uh, yeah. But he's doing well. Obviously, yeah, that's the best thing. Are you are world. you gonna are you gonna? I got a feeling that well. Yeah, I'm sure he'll play whatever you want him to play, but uh, maybe he'll be a golfer. Maybe 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 he'll be a seven foot golfer in Central Florida. But I have a feeling there's going to be a basketball in his hands. Well, he actually already enjoys it. You no, know, we have yeah. a couple of hoops. Or, you know, <laughs> people have, you know, he, he received a lot of them as gifts, and uh, he enjoys it now. I think since he, because now he starts realizing stuff. When he saw me on TV playing yeah. and stuff, he, uh, my wife said he started like playing more too. So right. You know, but obviously, I mean, I love the way if he, you know, he had he's talented enough and he decides to go that way, you know, for me to, to work with him the way my dad did. But obviously, exactly. choice it's, and, uh, you know, and I could, it's very important to not, you know, push your kids too hard and not force them into something to, you know, kind of let them figure it out on their own. And, you know, my dad, you know, he, once I decided I wanted to play basketball, you know, he was obviously you know, pushing me to make sure, you know, I do it right. But he never, you know, told me I have to play just because right. he played. So that was something that was very important to do. 
Yeah, there's a there's a bond there's a bond there that stays with, with you forever when you share sure. something you love. So hey, uh, Nick, best of luck as you get ready for the playoffs. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I've mentioned to you you're my you're my first Montenegrin guest, and uh, we're 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 the world of basketball. We're taking people around the world of basketball, and, and uh, we're educating them on uh, on all the great players, coaches, and executives that come from outside the United States. You are in the midst, my friend, of a great NBA career. Keep it up and stay healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great interview with Nick Vucevic. His son, Philip, is a year and a half now, and I have a feeling, I hope I'm around to see that young man grow up because he could be like a seven-foot-four point guard. The genes are there, and the love of basketball is certainly in the Vucevic family. So uh, we're excited to see how Philip develops. But uh, now on to our second guest, uh, one of the great coaches in all the world, a professor of basketball, I always call him. He's got experience uh, not only in the NBA, but, of course, one of the great coaches in Europe. We'll bring you that now. Ettore Messina, the coach of Olympia Milan. Ettore, it's uh, such a pleasure to have you come on the podcast. It's a great, great pleasure and honor, believe me, especially in these tough days where I yes. miss all my friends in America. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here, believe me. Before, before we talk about your career, uh, and I'm going to go back to the very beginning, okay? I've, got, I've done my research, okay? But, Please but, tell me, that's it. <laughs> uh, but we will, we will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you guessing. Sure. But before sure. then, uh, you just returned back uh, to Italy where you you're essentially, I don't know exactly the title, but essentially you're the president and the coach of, the, of one of the great clubs in Europe. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I also have the job title of president of basketball operation. Right, Yeah, It just means that I, that I, kept, uh, I kept for me the final word right. and everything which is related to basketball. Right. Which is, and, and I can choose the people that I work with. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, before you went back, you spent uh, the last five years with the San Antonio Spurs. Greg Popovich, some great players, great tradition. Yeah. And and you you knew the NBA before because you had come over before, and you have so many friends. But what what did you take away? Like, what did you take away from your time in the NBA? First of all, amazing league in terms of how everything is run professionally whether we're talking about the referees, the coaches, the players, the strength coaches, the people in the, in, in, in the offices, you know, really, really, you know, high level, classic. I, I, have no, I have no other words. The second thing that I always, I always found great from the NBA is the sense of belonging that everybody has once he's in the NBA. I even experienced that on myself. And it goes back to many, many years ago, where we were all watching, you know, these socks with the logo, you know, right, that right. people, <laughs> the, the players and coaches and staff from the NBA were wearing. Right. You know, there is a strong, I mean, you can fight on the court, but then there is a strong sense of belonging to the coaches association, to the players association, to the NBA itself. I had the, I had the great opportunity to be a part of uh, a basketball without borders when they invited me to coach in, uh, in South Africa for the, Africa game uh, last summer, to, uh, to, um, last summer, yeah. I mean, what an experience. What an experience to share time with uh, these great players, these great coaches, the commissioner, his staff. I mean, this great sense of belonging is always amazing. Then, of course, the game is much faster than here in the EuroLeague. I love the EuroLeague game. EuroLeague game is a combination. Um, Coach Pitino said that in a few interviews after coaching in Europe. He's a combination of professional players playing with the intensity of a college game every week. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, 40 minutes, every possession is huge. A lot of drama every game. Uh, I mean, usually you will enjoy that. Okay. So, but, but the, the game itself in the NBA is amazing. And one big lesson I learned is this. And an NBA player is usually such a great athlete. Uh, that he can make a mistake, and because of his athleticism, he, he can cover up his mistake. You know, I mean, uh, I had the luck to coach Manu in, in Italy when he was very young, and he was like that, and he's been like that in the NBA. But then, uh, I mean, a, a good athlete in the NBA, he can make a mistake in positioning, 
And then once he is, is realizing that, boom, he jumps or he's light or he reacts quickly or he uses his uh, wingspan and he covers for himself. In Europe, because of the different athleticism, if you make a mistake in positioning, usually that leads to an open shot or even a layup or a foul. So that's a big difference between the two leagues. You have, you have such a growth mindset. From what I know of you, you have always studied the game, never satisfied with, with what you already know, and you know a lot. How did, how did you become a better coach, um, just in terms of the, the, the strategy, the X and O's? Because I know you. You don't stand still. You try to get better. Uh, first of all, I copied a lot all my, all my life. And, and even these five years in the NBA, I stole so many ATOs or so many little details. Uh, I studied the rotation of the other coaches. Uh, I mean, the um, substitution patterns, uh, when they called timeout, how they can come out. I had different ideas on covering pick and roll, which is the nightmare of every coach in the world. Uh, but I think uh, all of us, and I think it's the same for you, I think we have to be grateful to great coaches who have been open to share their knowledge with us when we were young and even now. I think, I, I think, uh, uh, I mean, that, that's something that we have, I have to be, and I will be grateful forever. Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to be, become friends with coaches like, like you, like Bob McKillop, head basketball coach at, uh, at Davidson. I had the opportunity to spend time with Coach Smith when he, the many years I, I he was at uh, in North Carolina. So many other coaches, and of course, I mean, I had I had this unique opportunity to know, learn, and and live close to Coach Popovich. And, and you know, but these are just just a few of them. But uh, all the th- I remember back in the days, I was a young assistant coach in the second division of Italy, and uh, our our uh, one of our players, John Brown, had, had played for 10 years with the Atlanta Hawks. So he set up a trip for me and for my head coach. And my head coach took me because I knew English. I mean, <laughs> and he didn't know English very well. So he took me as a translator. And we spent 10 days in America with all the former head coaches that John Brown had. Coaches like Cotton Fitzsimmons, um, uh, Stan Albert, or whatever it was, and Yubi Brown. And I... And I met, and I met Coach Hubie Brown, and then I met him years after in, in Europe when he was doing his clinics. Coach Hubie Brown has been a tremendous teacher. I tried to get as a sponge as much as I could from, from Coach Brown. So all these people that was not, that took the time to show something or teach something to a young, unknown coach coming from the middle of nowhere, I mean, those are the people that I own more in my, I own most in my life. So you owe the most probably <clears throat> to your father because he told you you needed to learn English. You read the article. Uh, <laughs> I read uh, everything. Uh, Come on. How come you know that? That's a, true, that's a true story. I was in high school in Italy. And uh, the kind of high school that I was attending this in the early 70s uh, was uh, uh, allowed me to take uh, a foreign language that I choose English only the first two years. Then the remaining three years, no more foreign language. And my father, that was a lawyer, old old style uh, lawyer, never never done any sport in his life, right, <laughs> so right. never watches sports <laughs> on television. He comes up one day and he says, "Look, you're you're at the end of this second year. For next year, I will I would like you to enroll in a, uh, in an English school so you can learn well English, just two three times a week in the afternoon." I said, Dad, why? And this is early 70s. Nobody was traveling back then. He tells you, because English will be important in your life. Man, guess what? I got all the biggest opportunity in my life as a coach, thanks to the fact that I knew English. I, was, I went to this trip with my coach. That coach hired me because I don't even know if he knew about me as a basketball coach, but he knew I knew English. So I was doing the simultaneous translation when he was talking to the team in Italian. And my two, our two foreigners could know what he was talking about. And then I, I signed for Bologna. Bologna, I mean, it's been like the Celtics in Italy for years, Virtus Bologna. So they hired me as the head of their youth program. Huge, huge job back then. I was so happy. And the, 
they sign a new head coach for the team and the guy goes and says, I need an assistant. You know what? He knows English. You know, why don't you do that in addition to coach all the young things? So as a matter of fact, I was in the gym for 10 hours a day, but that was, I mean, that was the, the beginning of everything. Uh, I was an assistant coach. Uh, thank you to Dan Peterson, to Bob Hill when he coached for one year in Bologna. And then this is the biggest one. And you know that. Uh, yeah. and I don't <laughs> wait for your question. One year I was, I was a young assistant in Bologna and, uh, they organized a huge clinic in Milano in, with uh, uh, a one-man clinic with Coach Smith. And I don't know for which reason Coach Smith accepts to come to Italy and he does this two two or three days clinic. And so who does the translation? Who does the translation? So they call me and I go there and I do the translation for Coach Smith in the clinic. So I'm on the court with him and he works like if he was in Chapel Hill going through all his drills and talking and blah, blah. And I start spending, you know, all the day, even dinner with him and all the coach Gamba, the famous uh, yes, Olympic coach Sandra of Italy. Gamba, yeah. And so coach at the end says, why, why next summer don't you come over to Chapel Hill with some of your young players? They can play in camp. And this thing, boom, 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 build. And one day coach calls me and say, uh, listen, I was back then I was coaching now the national team of Italy. So this is 10 years later, fast forward. Coach says, yeah, you know what? Uh, Coach Larry Brown, my former player, is taking the, the Pacers here for training camp. Why don't you come over to Chapel Hill? So I spent all training camp of the Pacers in Chapel Hill. And I, I, at the end of practice, Coach Brown, Coach Smith, and Coach Roy Williams were watching practice again and talking basketball. And I was admitted in this room. Of course, I, you know, I didn't say one word. <laughs> you know, that was like a light clinic for 10 days. So I was, I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you so many stories like this. I was just blessed, blessed with the opportunity to see the greatest. When uh, you told me before we started, you did watch the first episode of The Last Dance. Oh, yeah. So I want to know, I want to know, I had a very emotional reaction when I saw Coach Smith on the video. Yes. Did you have the same reaction? Yes. What What went through your mind? His generosity. Yeah, his yeah. sense, uh, his honesty, he's, uh, uh, you know, I, I have another story. If, if we have time, I'll tell you the story. I want to hear story. I want to hear as many this as I great, can. This, this is a great story. <laughs> so one of these years that I'm coaching the national team of Italy, uh, I was also taking care of the development program of the Federation. So every fall, I was taking our under 19 teams team uh, to America. And to play with, uh, uh, let's say, middle, uh, good Division One, uh, Division One team, of like Manhattan, was not like Ken- Manhattan College, where a where a, where a young coach <laughs> named Fran Fraschilla was running the program, and we played that game, and you remember very well. You remember nobody, it, it felt like a Euroleague game last week, a couple of weeks ago, because nobody was in the stands. It was a scrimmage. It was yeah, a scrimmage. But it was, now, it was a great experience. I, so, I, I, anyway. lie, I lie and tell everybody I'm 1-0, oh, but it was a scrimmage. It was a... <laughs> no, it was, you're 1-0. Oh no, no, no. no, no, no. No, no. Anyway, so, I'm sorry. I interrupted so, you. No, 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 no. So, so one of those years, we were based in uh, Davidson, North Carolina, at Coach McKillop's college, and we were practicing there. And, uh, you know, so one day, and we were playing uh, UNC at Greensboro, we're playing Davidson. We're playing. And one day I drove the team. I talked to coach and I drove the team to Chapel Hill to take the team to watch practice, to watch North Carolina practice. So we're there and uh, we were sitting high in the stands. The manager sit all my team in the stands. I'm with, I'm with them. Coach walks in and he sees me and he calls me down on the court. So you can imagine my players, they saw this and they thought I was, you know, very close to God, you know, right. they, 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 they right. better listen to me. So we, we watch practice and we're like, the end of practice coach, uh, uh, with his nasal voice, I said, where are you, where, where are you going tonight? I said, coach, we're driving back to Davidson. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't you take your team to dinner? I said, coach, I, I don't know. Yeah, don't worry. So he says dinner for my team. At that stakeout that there is at the at the very end beginning of the 
of Chapel Hill, there's a famous steakhouse where the team used to go, and I think they still go there after after they had their pre-game meal, their post-game meal, and whatever. So we go there, and you know we're sitting, and uh, coach shows up. Coach shows up, and he had a he had a commitment for later in the night, some you know social you know uh, thing that he had to do. He spent more than one hour with me and my team talking to my players. You cannot believe what this meant for these players. He talked to the players. I mean, just taking care of people. Unbelievable. I, I can't say. But also his open mind to social issues. Uh, it was not only X and O's. It, it was, you know, a lifetime experience to be able to talk about. And in that regard, it's the same thing with Coach Pop. You know, people, people that, that, that go beyond simple basketball. You know, and when, and when we're lucky to meet you. And you surely remember because you, you met him a lot of times, Coach Carmeseca. Of and, course. And, and for for all us Italian, he yep. was like you know the person that was always welcoming an Italian coach in New York at St. John, and he was talking and going to dinner and explaining basketball and whatever. Uh, like you know, these people are just amazing. I, uh, you know, just great this, memories. This is a this is a theory I have. I'm so glad you mentioned these coaches because there's this theory I tell. You know, I have tried it, Tere. You know how much I love international basketball. I know um, you do. Yeah, You've been to Treviso, to the, to the NBA many times. camp in Treviso. So I, many times. You're 13, over there, I remember. Th- you know, I t- thir- 13 trips to Venice for free. <laughs> it's pretty well, good. that's great. That, that's yeah. great because, you know, I also have that, that, that mind frame, you know. I, yes. I'm lucky. I, I haven't worked all my year. All my exactly. Life, you know, I'm I, the I, same I, way. Yeah, no. and, and and honestly so many great memories of being i i saw you a number of times at the camp but so many great basketball friendships um yes. in places yes. like treviso and around europe but here's my theory um i tell my american coaching friends this in the 60s and the 70s and then later bob mckillop in the 80s but the american coaches like coach smith coach ub brown jack ramsey coach Carnesecca. They had a great impact on international coaches. Absolutely. Uh, and, Absolutely. And and uh, I my analogy, you can give me give me forgive me for giving this analogy. It'll take a few seconds, but it's like going into the Louvre in Paris, and the American coaches see the Mona Lisa from straight on. It's a masterpiece. My international coaching friends, my European coaching friends, they see the Mona Lisa, but they're off to the side. It's still a masterpiece, but they have a different perspective on the masterpiece. And I think what I love about international basketball, like you, you and so many uh, international coaches have now brought the international game back to the United States almost full circle and are teaching things that we did. We, you know, the spread, pick and roll, the, you know, the different concepts of the big men handling the ball. And I, I want I want I want to know if you think that's true, the way the game has come full circle. To answer your question, I go back to a clinic in 1992. Uh, I'm in Tenerife, Spain, and there is this huge clinic. Uh, and uh, I'm one of the one of the people who were invited to speak. But uh, and the, the let's say the main guest, the, the, the star, the attraction of the clinic is Coach Ryland. Okay, I was I was uh, a young Italian coach. I had three four years in the league. I had I had this, my team that won something, so that's why they invited. Uh, long story short. So I'm so excited to go there and listen to do my thing, but listen to Coach Riley. Some 800 coaches from all over Europe. Uh, I mean, I vivid that. So I remember the first lecture of Coach Riley starts with this quote. He says, um, he introduced the topic or whatever. And said, listen, uh, before I start working on our turnout, you know, the fast break series, don't forget in the NBA, we assume that a player and catch, dribble, pass, shoot. And back then, and I started my lecture the following day with this thing, I said, in Italy, in Europe, we do not assume that. We need to build our players because we do not have four years of college where players, most of the case, learns from great coaches their fundamentals. Now it's flipped. Now it's flipped because they don't stay in college for whatever reason, okay? Because there is a, a lot of uh, 
your player development in America through the AAU system is based more on playing games where, where the strong player shoots most of the times because he, he needs to showcase his talent. Okay. Because that gives him. By the oh, way, well, tra- well, tragically, in some ways, I I I I, I agree with you, but, yeah. but I I respect <laughs> I respect everybody's goal in life. Right. While in in Europe, we we have to make an emphasis in developing players, and so following the Yugoslavian school, and uh, you know we came down with the Italian school, with the Spanish school, and we teach, we keep teaching because because either because you don't have the money to sign top players, or uh, either because you want to win more quickly, you want to develop your players. And that, that goes in, in the direction of what you just said. Yeah. You know what I used to tell my players? Uh, don't get bored if you're getting better. That's a great quote. Yeah. I'll take note of that. And, I'll I'll take, I, and by the way, this morning I found a quote, I swear to you, I found a quote about uh, in Europe we never take, we never assume the players know how to pass, catch, shoot, and dribble. And I have it in quotes, but I didn't know who said it. Now I know. I've looked at that quote. I looked at that. I, I can show you. I have it in my notes. Uh, you may be able well, to see this. A little bit. But well, yes. that, anyway, but anyway. Your I, quote is I there. Humbly, yeah. humbly take property and ownership <laughs> of that quote. But, and I have, I have 800 witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> well, I used to tell my players, I know this is, I used to tell them I'm bored too. But we're going to do the first 30 minutes every day, no matter what, the fundamentals. And you know, I, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, you go. No, you please. No, I, I think, and tell me your opinion on this. I think that uh, your players help you if they give you or they commit different mistakes. What Boris uses as a coach is the repetition of the same freaking mistake. Okay. Give me something new. Do something different, even if you make a mistake, and I'll be happy to help you to correct that. But don't be committing always the same mistake for lack of, let's say, focus or lack of attention to details, because that drives me crazy. Yeah. You know, Ettore, my feeling has always been about European basketball that the great coaches from the United States, Jack Ramsey and Chuck Daly and Lou Karnaseka, came to Europe in the 60s and 70s and, and helped teach the game to a group of coaches that now have become great coaches. But there's one guy that I don't think gets enough recognition for his uh, contribution to international basketball, and he is a dear friend of yours. Um, and I always say, that in Italy particularly, there was a time where the name Bob McKillop from Davidson was more well-known than Roy Williams or Mike Krzyzewski or any of the great American college coaches. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Uh, let me talk to you about my history with uh, Bob McKillop. I said he's a very, very good friend. So in 1983, I go to Bologna to become a, uh, an assistant coach and take care of all the youth programs. So I found out that the club in the last two or three years has uh, had a contact uh, through uh, uh, a renowned agent of players in New York City, Richard Kaner, that you probably uh, know, Yes. Um, to basically send a young prospect to play in high school in, in America just to speed up their improvement, their development. So... Uh, they were, we were sending players to Lutheran High School where Coach McKillop was coaching. They were living in a family, playing there. One of those, Augusto Binelli, ended up being drafted by the Atlanta Hawks later um, uh, in his career. So, you know, uh, that was a great step for the, our program. And in exchange for that, Coach McKillop was going to do a clinic and a camp with our players and whatever. So in the fall of 83, we had uh, lunch for the first time we met. And that started, uh, uh, I mean, a 30 plus years of friendship. And uh, even when I was with the national team and I was touring um, with our under 20 national team, uh, the United States to play the division one colleges uh, for two, three years, we based there uh, in uh, at Davidson uh, in their camp. And, you know, Bob became more and more uh, a frequent um, person in Italian basketball. The Federation, when I became head coach of the national team, uh, invited him for clinics or for camps uh, that were covering the whole country. And 
that prop that surely helped also his recruiting in Europe, and it became a familiar face for a lot of uh, coaches. We, you and I know this because we have been friends with him. He's a great coach. What kind of contribution did he make to the coaching community? You know, in Italy and particularly, but but in sure. Europe on the whole. Frank, first of all, I think that Bob, you, Coach Smith, uh, Coach Pop, all these great coaches. Uh, you know, there is one major lesson, which is the desire to share their knowledge. They're not, they're, they don't want to keep anything uh, hidden. They, they believe that sooner or later, anybody else can get to what they're doing. And it's just a matter of time. So if they can help, you know, especially young coaches to develop quicker, they're doing a great favor to these people and to the game of basketball. And it's a matter also to leave a legacy. You know, uh, one day, one day we'll all remember these great coaches. So no jealousy, no secrets, just, uh, you know, a lot of will to share. First of all, second, um, a teaching method, teaching method, you know, especially in years where you start having a lot of information through the internet, through clinics, through a uh, website and DVDs and whatever, it's very difficult to select what can be part of your own system and build your own system and also develop the ability to say this thing I like is not good if I try to implement in my system. This thing I it's good for my system. So develop a, a, a teach a develop a system and a teaching method. That's what Bob is all about. Third, top attention to fundamentals and fourth and fourth Coach players were not great athletes, like he usually coaches at Davidson. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so develop skills. Develop skills. Yes. And don't only try the ability to jump. H having been around both of you, if both of you were, and, and of course he was a classroom teacher as well in high school, but I could see both of you in a classroom teaching something else besides basketball because of your teaching methods. That would be. Thank you. Yes, Thank I, you. I, I, I appreciate it. No, That's a I, great compliment. No, no, I, I know. I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. And I feel the same way about Bob. Let me change over now to the EuroLeague. Uh, you have had a lot of experience in the EuroLeague. You have been a very successful coach at uh, a number of places, winning, winning, uh, winning titles, being in Euro, EuroLeague Final Fours. Where is the EuroLeague competition today? Uh, compared to where it was when you first started coaching uh, in the EuroLeague uh, and maybe before it, it was called the EuroLeague because it's become more of a professional league now than ever, right? Yeah, first of all, all uh, leagues trying to, let's say, follow the path of the, uh, of the NBA. Uh, in, the, in the past years, it was a league where you had access winning your national championship. So until I think the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, only the teams that were winning the national championships were in part in the, at that time was called the League of the Champions. Now it's called, then it was called Champions League, then EuroLeague, okay? Then later on in the early 90s, they admitted the top two or three players of each country, okay? So they expanded the league. And then finally, towards the year 2000, they founded a league where the criteria to be admitted were more financial. You know, there was a, a certain number of uh, spots were left to the champion of maybe the smaller countries, but for the big countries like Italy, Spain, Greece, whatever, the top two, three, even four teams sometimes had uh, a contract with the EuroLeague and they were part of this league. Uh, so now it's a professional league. There is a union of players. There is a strong coaches association. There is a, a group of professional referees, uh, and it's 18 teams that cover almost all the great cities in Europe, with the exception of Paris and London. And that's the goal to have also those two major cities. League uh, basketball-wise, I think the league has progressed, but not as it could have been if. It would, it would have been possible to reach an agreement with the NBA to leave in Europe those prospects that you draft and they're not ready yet to play in the NBA rather than sending that, rather than send them to a development league. Unfortunately, we lost that train back then and now all the franchises in the NBA, they have these, their own G League team. They run a great development program and 
because of that, it's more complicated to get players in, um, in Europe from, uh, from the NBA. Uh, there is one final thing that separates us from the, the different financial laws uh, and tax rules in all the different countries that take part in Euroleague make very difficult the possibility to agree on a salary cap concept. And that, unfortunately, I think uh, uh, is the next step that we have to solve in order to guarantee equal access to the top global teams. Otherwise, it would be always more or less the top five, six, seven teams will always be in the final four. Right. Now, as, as someone who follows the EuroLeague closely, I, I wonder, like, I, when, you, when you were in San Antonio and you have somebody like Bryn Forbes coming into the uh, Spurs program, at the time he came from Michigan State, could he have really helped a top-level EuroLeague team? Like, I think some of these young players that come to, co- uh, come to the NBA from college are we're looking at the long-term projection. Could they win games at the top level in Europe? Would, as a coach, would you feel comfortable putting a college player on the court? No, uh, depend on the level of the team. If I would be coaching in Ceska, that that's absolutely not the case. I mean, that that's uh, a player coming out of college is not ready. But if I'm coaching in Milano or maybe in a smaller club, I might take a chance of a younger player, developing him for a couple of years. Right. And then, you know, the kid might, might go you know, to a better, to a higher level uh, or higher expectations thing. But uh, honestly, when, especially now, when most of the kids come out of college very early, it's almost impossible that they are already uh, prepared to contribute in, uh, in a game which is so physical and so stressful like the European or the Euroleague game. Yeah. When uh, that reminds me, um, I don't know if you had coached him as part of uh, when you were coaching the Italian team, but you were in the NBA while Luka Doncic was doing his magical things in Real Madrid. Are you surprised by the immediate impact that he's had? Although, uh, because he was so well thought of and the MVP of everything, you said, oh boy, this guy is going to be a really good player right away in the NBA. What was your thought on him? Uh, I thought he was going to be a good player in the NBA. Honestly, I could not ever imagine that he could have had such an impact right off the bat right. in terms of producing triple doubles like, you know, peanuts. And uh, my own, my concern, well, I was an admirer of his personality, of his game. He was, as you said, he had huge success in EuroLeague at a very young age. But I thought that his, uh, his uh, uh, athleticism or his, or his uh, you know, quickness was, uh, you know, could have been a problem in this league. I think that the, the key thing in his career has been the coach Carlisle gave him the ball and put him at the point guard. So now as a small kid is guiding him, he can pass Carlton right away. Uh, another player, uh, he can have, he can use his power and his physicality and his long range uh, shooting. So the, and you know, giving him the ball and that responsibility gave him the green light to create, which is where he's at, at his best. I always remember that Sharunas as his cabbages when he came in the NBA, uh, he was used especially for his great ability to shoot. So basically, he was staying in the corner, and most of the times, he just had to shoot or pass. He was used more as a catch-and-shoot uh, catch guy. And, of course, when he played in the NBA, he did that because that was what his team needed, okay? If he would have been in a situation where they asked him a different you know, game, maybe Sharunas could have blossomed into a very good NBA player. Who knows? But that was, I think, the big step for, for Luke, and I'm glad for him. Well, speaking of great uh, international players, a guy that you had a great effect on early in your in his career and is going into the Hall of Fame here in the next few years is is Manu Ginobili. Um, You got a chance to be around him and mentor him at a very young age uh, in Bologna. Uh, Talk about the and it reminds me, you are so when I think of you as a coach, I think of, of the of the attention to detail you must be two inches more over here or a little bit more over here but with him it seems like he's like what we'd say in america a bucking bronco like a a horse that (laughs) needs to be corralled how did you balance how did you balance this exacting detail versus letting a player have some freedom well that's a great point that you're making uh when we signed him in bologna 
uh, our starting guard was Sasha Danilovic, the legendary Serbian player that played for the Heat for a few years. And uh, uh, Manu was playing in a, in a smaller club and he was doing exactly what you're saying. He was doing something that sometimes was crazy to me. Like when he came hey, for a few months, he was doing things that Pop considered crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> we signed him, we signed him and, uh, you know, uh, after after two practices coming back from the Olympics at only 30, Danilovic, who was plagued by injury, decided to retire. So all of a sudden, Manu is our go-to guy, is our player, is our main guy. And he was a learning experience because sometimes he was doing things that, you know, we were saying, what the hell is he doing? Where, where is he going? And then, boom, he was scoring or making an assist. And sometimes he was throwing the ball in the stands. Too. But to his credit, amazing sponge. Like, uh, I think the greatest thing of Manu is his ability to combine instinct and reasoning. You know, because once the game was starting, he was capable to stop thinking and just follow his great, you know, instincts for basketball. But during practices, timeouts, meetings, whatever, he was a sponge and he was processing everything. He had so many situations where he hit the wall and bounces back quickly. Main story, first game in the EuroLeague that year, we go to Athens and play uh, the team coached by legendary Dusnikovic, the dean of our the Yes. Uh, you know, Yugoslavian coaches. Yes. So we lose at the buzzer. Manu goes scoreless from the floor. He shot, he made just four or five or six free throws, something like that. I walk out, I tell to my assistant coach, the more more important had been the guy that was pushing me to sign him for one year. And I tell him, you know, your boy here, if that's <laughs> if that's our go-to guy, we're done. And we can't even imagine. Long story short, six months later, Manu was the MVP of the finals of the Euroleague. Yeah. And he led us to win to win the Euroleague, and he, that happened maybe four or five times during the year. That he was facing a higher challenge, he was maybe collapsing in that specific moment, and then he was processing, learning, yes. Yes. and you know, and 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 being better and better. That's great. Well, listen, it's a pleasure and honor. You are one of the great coaches in the in the world. Stay healthy, and uh, we just hope we'll see you back on the court uh, coaching very soon. Hopefully soon. Take care, my friend. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you. Well, thanks to two very special guests, Nick Vucevic and Ettore Messina. Again, if you're enjoying World of Basketball, subscribe to the podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Give us a five-star. The bosses love it. We want to keep bringing you some great stories, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, from ex-players, from current players, uh, people who really understand this game around the globe. So that's it. And speaking of around the globe, stay with us and stay with me as I bring you to another place next week in my world of basketball.